Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Ontario Auditor General came out with a scathing report yesterday. One of the findings included the province doling out more than $200 million in grants to businesses that weren't even eligible for COVID relief. We'll get reaction from the report from Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner. How is the Omicron variant different from the others and why are scientists so concerned? We'll delve into that. And a new study found that political partisanship plays a central role in how people remember events. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program, as you know, we uh, mentioned uh, the Auditor General's report. This is the annual report. There are some other reports that uh, the Auditor General would do from time to time. She did one, of course, about uh, the medical profession and uh, how the government is handling the Ministry of Health and things of this nature. But this is just an overall, where are they spending our money and why are they spending it? And, and you know, is it efficient? And uh, the report from the uh, Auditor General yesterday actually, well, has a, a few things we need to talk about here. Thousands of businesses received more than $200 million in provincial COVID-19 grants that they were not eligible for. As if that's not bad enough, apparently... Uh, the small business support grant uh, lacked the controls to weed out applicants who got the money, and the province isn't doing much to try to get the money back. Global's Dave Woodard has some of the details there. At a news conference, Premier Ford says he doesn't regret sending out $3.3 billion in grants for small businesses. Because uh, of those grants, companies are still in business today because of the, the help that we provided. He says when you work as fast as the province needed to in the face of the pandemic, some things were bound to be missed. Still, he admits he will be looking into the report. There always have to be accountability, and uh, we'll, we'll make sure people are accountable, and we're, we're accountable for that as well. The audit also found that medical leave for OPP officers with PTSD is contributing to understaffing across the province. About a 1,000 frontline constable positions were left vacant last year. That's about a quarter of all such positions in the OPP. Dave Woodard, Global News. Well, let's talk about accountability. And uh, to do that, so pleased to welcome back to the program Mike Schreiner. Mike, of course, is the leader of the Ontario Green Party. He's also the MPP uh, for Guelph. Uh, Mike, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Hey, Bill. It's great to be back and always a pleasure to join you. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what the Auditor General uncovered yesterday. Uh, some of this stuff is, is rather troubling. Uh, uh, when we start talking about money going out the door, you like to think that governments uh, have some sense of accountability, have a plan in place. Uh, I know the federal government was criticized for the, doing the same thing when, when the, the federal auditor talked about the money that was going out the door. I, I get the premier's thing here, that let's get the money out there to the people that need it. But if if they don't have rules and qualifications, Mike, what's the sense in having anything, any sort of a standard here? Well, Bill, what's so infuriating about what's happened is there's so many small businesses who are hurting and never qualified for money. And now we find out there were businesses who did not qualify and um, received money. And so it's just really a slap in the face of so many struggling small businesses who were fighting tooth and nail to try to get some government support, uh, in some cases finally did after a lot of advocacy by MPP offices like my own. Uh, and then there's some that, that never did receive money who really certainly deserved it. And I think part of the problem was um, the fact that the premier delayed and dithered for so long on putting together a program to support small businesses. Finally, under intense pressure, he threw together a program at the last minute while his finance minister was vacationing in the Caribbean. And so the program just wasn't designed very well. It wasn't implemented very well. And it's created, you know, a lot of problems that we're, we're seeing the results of right now. So at the very least, I think the government needs to be hold themselves accountable and at least try to recover the money that was 
went to people who should not have received it and look at how this program could be redesigned in a way to ensure that those small businesses who still need support receive the support they need to help get through this pandemic. Well, that's the uh, the subset to this story, isn't it, Mike? Uh, you know, when you find all this money that went to people that didn't even qualify for it, uh, the uh, the underside of that, there are businesses that did qualify that didn't get the money, and, and they're still hurting right now. And that's why you're looking for some efficiency in a process like this. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, the, the government needs to hold themselves accountable, uh, fix the program, and um, look at ways that the program can be designed in a way that actually supports those businesses who need support. Uh, and quite frankly, even some of the businesses who have received support uh, could certainly benefit from some additional support. There were two rounds of the Ontario Business Support Grant, but we had three major waves of the pandemic uh, that locked businesses down. And so I think they should get those that need it should have additional support with a program that's designed with the, the appropriate controls in place to make sure the money is spent appropriately. There, there are a few other things here that I wanted to jump on here too, because I think they're worthy of, uh, of some discussion here. Uh, one, of course, was uh, personal protective equipment. And the first wave, uh, you know, the, the, the consensus was, well, we've been caught off guard here. Uh, we don't have enough, you know, masks and all, and all the other stuff that we needed at the time. And of course, as usual, the premier blamed the previous government. It was the Wynn administration that screwed this up. Uh, as you saw in the report yesterday, Mike, apparently we had more than enough here. Uh, but if the stuff had expired, and the, the the Ministry of Health was actually dumping this stuff, they were they were dump, getting rid of the stuff, and but they weren't replacing it, uh, it, it which indicates to us that uh, they knew that this stuff was necessary. They didn't think anything was going to happen in the way of a pandemic, so they just turfed this stuff. And then, you know, when they got caught, of course, without enough product, all of a sudden they're saying, well, it was the previous government's fault. They weren't doing their job. That's what it came down to. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty hard to blame a previous government that bought – PPE in response uh, to, um, you know, to uh, to previous uh, uh, outbreaks of, of viruses that, you know, then when we didn't need it, you need to have a rotation of stock like any, you know, good business person would tell you that. So for the current government then to say, OK, well, you know, we we got rid of the expired PPE but we didn't replace it like that's on the current government. Uh, and, and I think what we've learned is, is that when scientists, public health experts warn us of the possibility of challenges that we may face, whether it's a pandemic, you know, I would argue the climate crisis, uh, we need to make sure we have the proper precautions in place. Sometimes governments don't want to make those investments, but they're absolutely necessary because the consequences of not making those investments can be catastrophic. Two quick things about the education portfolio, and then I want to talk about the, the ministerial zoning orders because I know that's something that's uh, uh, of great concern to you. Private career colleges, and, and we know about these. You hear these advertised all over the place right now. These are private. These are not the ones that the public and the, the province is funding. 33% uh, of them are charging student higher fees than they were telling the government. That sounds like gouging to me. And it, as another one of these elements is is the colleges themselves, the community colleges around the province. Uh, international students, are, are, are they're three times more in the student population than they were just a couple of years ago. They get charged a higher fee. And the insinuation we got from the Auditor General yesterday, Mike, was colleges are accepting a lot more of these foreign students because they need the money. Uh, they're not getting enough money from the province, so there's, they're increasing the price for foreign students to come to these colleges, and that's basically how they're funding their programs. It, it sounds 
very, very bizarre that, that they have to resort to something like that. Yeah, Bill. So what we've seen, and this dates back to the previous government, uh, we've seen a declining contribution from the provincial government to support colleges and universities. In many cases now, the province is only funding between 30 and 40 percent of the cost of a college or university, which you start after saying, well, geez, is it even a public institution at, at that point? And because you know, tuition of domestic students is regulated, and, and I, I believe it should be because we want to keep tuition costs affordable for, for students. Uh, colleges and universities are being forced uh, to, to increasingly rely on international students and significant increases in international uh, tuition, which makes our colleges vulnerable. I mean, we've seen that in the case with Laurentian. I mean, who knows when borders are gonna close because of a pandemic or because, you know, a country's upset with this. I think of, you know, the steps Saudi Arabia took. I mean, you know, what if we we make China upset? So it's it makes our, our both colleges and universities very vulnerable. And really what it is, is we need to see increasing public contributions to colleges and universities. Ontario has the lowest per capita student funding of any province in the country. And at some point that's going to start to deteriorate the quality of higher education in this province, which is one of our competitive advantages. So we can't allow that to happen. Very quickly about ministerial resorting orders, because I know you've talked about this extensively. The AG's report essentially uh, validates what the Toronto Star report said a couple of months ago. Uh, they're using this more than any other previous government has used it. Uh, and as the Auditor General once again reported yesterday, it seems as if uh, most of the ones that the province is initiating right now, these ministerial zoning orders, are to favor people that have made huge contributions to the party or are even ex-party members, ex-government members of, of the progressive conservative government. Uh, it's not supposed to be that way, Mike. You know, Bill, I mean, the short answer is when 39% of the ministerial zoning orders benefit seven developers or companies, you, you know there's a problem, and, and it tells you the priorities of this government. I mean, there are times when it's appropriate to use a ministerial zoning order, but the way in which this government has used and abused them, and I think in particular controversial projects such as the Amazon warehouse uh, in Duffins Creek, the, the glass plant in Stratford, and a number of other ones, um, tells you that we have to rein in the use of ministerial zoning orders and put strict parameters that are transparent to the public around them. Well, yeah, especially when you see a comment from the premier, like, uh, you know, hey, we just, you know, we don't want, we can't hang around waiting for the regulations. Regulations are in, in place for a reason, uh, to protect the environment, to protect communities. I mean, to simply say these are a bother to us, that speaks to their attitude, I guess. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes left. I want to talk to you specifically about housing, which is a crisis. I mean, I, I, we can, I think, quite rightly use those two words in the same sentence now. Uh, we just got word here that the housing prices are continue through 2022. They're going to continue to rise right across the province. Uh, you've got a private member's bill that you're going to be introducing today, I think, isn't it? Yeah, Bill, I put forward, it's a motion, actually, I put forward okay. to really have government get back involved in housing. We have a housing affordability crisis uh, in the province. It really started in the 1990s when the provincial and federal governments got out of the housing game. Most of our affordable housing spaces were built in the 70s and 80s. The crisis has progressively gotten worse over the last two decades. It's reached a breaking point now during the pandemic. And we need to have solutions that engage the private sector 
sector and the Ontario Greens put forward a solid plan to do that. We also need to engage the public sector. And so we're committing to 100,000 affordable housing spaces across the province over the next decade, 60,000 permanent supportive housing spaces with wraparound mental health and addiction services to address chronic homelessness, and 22,000 Indigenous-owned, Indigenous-led affordable housing spaces. Those are the kinds of policies, in addition to working with the private sector, we need to do to ensure we have the right supply, we have enough affordable supply, and that we do it within existing urban boundaries so we can protect farmlands and wetlands at the same time. This is, you know, you know the stories that are going on here in Hamilton and in London, just what every other city right now, uh, with tent encampments and, and, and the problems they're causing within community and within uh, the, the communities of people that just don't have a roof over their head these days. Uh, the Fed, the province, the Fed's actually stepped up. I mean, they've said, here's the money, but it's contingent mm-hmm. upon provincial cooperation. I mean, they've got to pick up the ball here. Oh, they absolutely have to pick up the ball. And, you know, the bottom line is, another thing that came out of the other General's report yesterday is, The province has no coordinated strategy to address homelessness. The anti-poverty strategy the government released last year doesn't even have a goal of ending homelessness. That is unacceptable. Their studies show that for every $10 you spend in permanent supportive housing to end homelessness, you save $22 in other costs, social justice costs, first responder costs, emergency room visit costs. It saves money. It improves people's lives. And it improves the vibrancy and vitality of our communities when everyone has an affordable place to call home. So uh, let, let's talk about the motion today and, and the success of it. And it, I don't know if it's an apples to apples comparison, but I mean, we even saw yesterday in, in Parliament, Mike, uh, where the, all parties got together when it came to the conversion therapy bill, something they just said, look, at we, we've got some problems here and some differences here, but for the greater good, let's just all get this done. Uh, you don't often see that in, a, in an elected body like we did in Parliament. I'd like to see that same sort of attitude in the Ontario legislature when it comes to something like housing. Yeah, especially, Bill, when it comes to uh, having the government be involved in housing, and especially when the federal government has put money on the table. We need the province to step up, be a partner with the federal government and municipalities to expand um, the affordable housing supply. And, Bill, quite frankly, do it in a way that, you know, Hamilton, uh, to to your listeners in Hamilton, uh, where Hamilton has said, hey, we're going to do this within existing urban boundaries because we know that good land use planning matters. The Auditor General report also said that the current provincial government's um, infrastructure projects are inconsistent with good land use planning practices, and we're seeing the devastating consequences of that, unfortunately, in places like British Columbia. So we need to increase housing affordability supply, and we need to do it in the right way that protects people, property, and communities. Well, I know it's just about our time, but I mean, the, the bottom line here, as you and I have talked about in the past, it's, it's just not sustainable for communities to have to foot the bill for this. It's just not in Guelph, not in Hamilton, not in London, not anywhere. Uh, you just can't put that on the on the property tax base, which is what, the as you mentioned, the previous provincial and federal governments have done. Uh, the federal government has stepped up. The provincial government has to make a commitment to this, too. And hopefully your motion today is going to be a good first step in that direction. Uh, Mike, as always, thanks so much for this. Great having you on the program today. And we'll certainly follow the, uh, the progress, I hope, of uh, your motion today. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Bill. Anytime. Mike Schreiner, of course, the leader of the Ontario Green Party and the MPP uh, for Guelph. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, yesterday, uh, Angus Reid folks joined us, remember, and we talked about the level of concern Canadians are having about the the new variant uh, that's uh, that 
well, it's in the news all over the place these days, of course, where he's very concerned about what's going to be happening uh, with this. And, of course, that gets into the whole idea of vaccinations and getting booster shots. Well, as it stands right now at uh, 9.34 in the morning, uh, the protocol in Ontario is if you're 70 or over, uh, then you qualify for that third shot. That's going to change later on today, as we are told. Uh, there's no confirmation yet from Queen's Park, but we can tell you this, that uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, the Ontario Medical Officer of Health, uh, has his daily briefing at around 2 o'clock this afternoon, and it's expected that he's going to lower the age of eligibility down to, well, we've heard as low as 50 for certain high-risk groups as well. Global's Tina Turjani has some details for us. The pool of those eligible for that third shot will be opened up to anyone age 50 and older. Several reports suggest that will be announced today, with shots going into arms as early as a few weeks, possibly sooner. The National Advisory Committee on Immunization had previously recommended that third vaccination come six months after the second, but we'll have to wait for today's announcement to know for sure if that will be the case for Ontario. Cases have been on the rise here, and that is expected to continue over the colder winter months. As of yesterday, the seven-day average reached 830. A month ago, it was closer to 350. Third shots to this point have only been offered to those 70 and over, those in health care, those who got two doses of AstraZeneca, as well as Indigenous, Métis and Inuit communities. Tina Trajani, Global News. So where do we go on this and, and what does it mean for those of us who may be waiting for that booster shot or maybe even had the first one yet? Uh, does, does this cause us to rethink? Uh, to try to get some uh, detail on this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Don Bodish, who is the uh, tenured professor of pathology and Molecular Medicine, McMaster University, also the uh, Canada Research Chair in Aging and Immunity with the DeGroote Institute for Infectious Disease Research. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Great to have you with us again. Thanks so much for having me. Let me ask you, maybe just to put this in context, I know we've spent so much time, and I understand why, uh, talking about the Omicron variant that's up here. Uh, but as I think we just heard in that report, we got we got to keep in mind that we're dealing with the, still dealing with the Delta variant here, aren't we? We sure are. And Delta variant is not good. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's one that causes more hospitalizations than earlier versions of it. Uh, people who've had prior COVID are sort of less protected against Delta than um, than uh, if they've been infected with Delta. So, you know, we're still dealing with this. And I think what the Omicron variant has done is really said, okay, here's a virus that looks like it's as transmissible as Delta, so can infect at least six to nine people for every person who's infected. And it has a lot of the features of being able to escape under an imperfect immune response. So again, our older adults or people who are, you know, not totally well protected because maybe they're immunosuppressed will be at risk. And so we've got this, this double threat really uh, on the horizon. So it is a really good time for us to all to reflect, uh, to think about the power of that third dose and frankly, to get ourselves protected before the holiday season. Now, we're still learning, obviously, about Omicron. I mean, almost on a daily basis, we're getting this. And I don't want to get too deeply into the weeds about, uh, you know, what this virus looks like, et cetera. Uh, but, that, but that's right into your wheelhouse. So maybe you can shed some light on this for us. Uh, yeah. we, we, all know about, we all know about the spike proteins. We've all seen this, these pictures, these ugly pictures of what this virus mm -hmm. and, and what this thing actually looks like. Uh, I, I'm getting the sense, that, especially with the research that, we, that is being done so far about the, the Omicron, is that there's a concern here that the the, the the vaccines that we're using right now may or may not be as effective against all of these. In other words, there may be one or two of those elements of, of the new variant that may be immune to this. Now, they haven't confirmed that yet, but that's, that's, that's troubling. 
It is very troubling. And you've really hit the nail on the head in the way you've described it there. This uh, this variant was perhaps the most predictable part of this pandemic, unfortunately. We you know, had been saying since the very beginning, none of us are safe unless all of us are safe. So we have to make sure that this these vaccines go to the entire world. Because if we allow the virus to spread um, and we allow millions of people to be infected, well, there's lots of chances for these new mutations. And if you had to make a best guess about how the Omicron variant arose, you would guess just by the sheer number of mutations and the fact that they all seem to be around that spike protein and all seem to be around mutations that would help evade an imperfect immune response. You would predict that it probably lived in somebody for quite some time who did not have perfect immunity. So that might have been somebody who'd been Uh, infected with a previous variant. It might have been an older person who was vaccinated and didn't have, you know, a perfect immune system. It might be somebody who was immunosuppressed. And that long coexistence allowed it to pick up mutations that look like it will make a lot of the antibodies generated by our vaccine a little bit less effective. Now, the good news is that even when we're seeing waning immunity in people, even when we're seeing antibody levels go down after vaccination, we're still seeing a lot of protection against hospitalization and death. And if you asked me to look into my crystal ball, I would say that that's probably because our memory T cells are doing their job in helping to fight uh, this virus as well. And that those memory T cells probably are still going to be somewhat, if not totally, uh, protective against uh, the Omicron variant. So the reason we're pushing to get these boosters um, is because it's been shown that once people have their three shots, they really don't carry the virus so much. They don't even develop like mild symptoms as frequently. Uh, and we're hoping that that means they'll also be a little bit more protected against Omicron once it, once it starts spreading in Canada. Which I guess, you know, the, the, the reality here is it's already started spreading since we've seen cases almost across the country now. But you, you made an interesting point here because I still think, that we, you know, we need to remind people about what we're dealing with here. I, I heard a discussion the other day and one of the commentators was saying, well, it's really nobody's fault that these things are, are, the, are these variants are coming up. I, I disagree. I think, yeah, it is. The longer we let this thing live and, and fester uh, by not getting vaccinated, we're, we're giving this this in this particular case, this virus and this variant, uh, an opportunity, as you mentioned, to morph into something what is what we're facing right now with Omicron. Uh, the sooner we can get people vaccinated and not, don't give these viruses a host, the sooner we're going to get this under control. That, that's simple logic, isn't it? I agree with you 100%. And, you know, the fact that we've had a million doses of vaccine uh, expire and go to waste in Canada, I think is is appalling, really. I mean, a little bit of wastage is inevitable, but that's a lot. That could have done a lot of good in a lot of places. And, you know, I think we just, Canadians are not super good at looking the global perspective. We often think of our healthcare system, our families and friends. But the fact of the matter is, like I said, infectious disease doesn't see borders. And we have to keep the global responsibility. And this is one of the things I've been saying, we need boosters. Do we need them? Absolutely. Does everyone need one today? Absolutely not. There's no evidence that younger people uh, who've been vaccinated less than six months need the booster. So what would be the best use of those vaccines? It would be to vaccinate the world. Do older adults need a third dose? Absolutely. Well, getting them that third dose before the holiday season when they go see their little grandbabies who aren't fully vaccinated yet help? Absolutely, it will. So using them correctly and using science to guide these choices is so important. 
And, and as you say, the, this virus does not discriminate. And, you know, whether you're a farmer in South Africa or an NFL quarterback, if you're not vaccinated, uh, you're a potential host for this thing. And, and it, may not, it may not kill you. It may not even hospitalize you. But it's giving you the opportunity to spread it to somebody else who may actually end up in one of those scenarios. I, I think, you know, we've, we've, this has been around so long. I, I, I hate to think that we're just saying, okay, the worst is over. Because uh, we're still, as you say, uh, you know, let's focus on Omicron. But at the same time, the Delta variant is still out there and it's still killing people. Yeah, I, absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the things is people don't have a super good, um, aren't very good at judging their own personal risk, right? So, you know, many people say things like, oh, I don't need to get vaccinated because I'm healthy or I, you know, take this vitamin or whatever. Um that's not a really good assessment of risk. And it's also not really a very good assessment of the role that you play, like you said, in helping these new variants develop or helping your community, right? There's lots of people who would love to be protected, people who are undergoing cancer therapy, organ transplants, you know, our older, frailer individuals, they need our help too. And so vaccination really is a community responsibility because your personal choices actually do have a fairly big impact on our community and, and the vulnerable people living in it. And, and I think that was exemplified when we started learning about the Omicron, weren't we, doctor? I mean, if, mm -hmm. if in fact, as some people are speculating, uh, this may have originated in South Africa, and there's mm -hmm. still some debate about that, but it seems that way. Uh, their overall uh, vaccination rates, I, I think it's 40%, I, mm -hmm. which is, un it's mind boggling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you wonder, it, it's no wonder these things are going to start up. And, and of course, some of the other nations that uh, where we've seen it before too, the, those low vaccination rates are, are once mm -hmm. again, what, I guess they're our biggest enemy here. And you're, you're right. I mean, in North America, we're tossing vaccinations out because they, well, they've expired instead of putting them on a boat someplace and getting them mm -hmm. to where they're needed most. Yeah, and I think this also speaks to the fact that, you know, many parts of the world uh, don't have vaccine manufacturing capacity. And in truth, you know, having these things distributed more equitably throughout the world, having local manufacturers being able to produce things would help a lot, too. Because even in the early days, if you remember when our vaccines were delayed getting to Canada, it's because we didn't have the capacity to do local manufacturing for any of the mRNA vaccines. So, you know, infectious disease, believe it or not, is not a moneymaker for anyone. Vaccines, you know, with the exception of this uh, pandemic, where there's just so many of them being sold, are not huge moneymakers for any, uh, but by their nature, they have to be cheap and they have to be given to everyone. And so a lot of places have not just invested in vaccine manufacture. And we're really seeing that come back to haunt us because when we do want to vaccinate those parts of the world where shipping is a challenge, where, you know, just simply getting the vaccines there is, is difficult, we're really at a loss. And so expanding the know-how for vaccination and creating um, uh, places across the world that can actually manufacture these things are going to be really essential to deal with future pandemics. Well, I know. And, and I guess what's most frustrating about your point there is that they, they all promised that we're going to do this. You know, mm -hmm. a year ago when these things started to roll out, they said, don't worry, we're going to make sure that everybody that needs one is going to get one, no matter where they are in the world. We'll find them and get them vaccinated. But, uh, you know, you're right. You know, money gets in the way of an awful lot of this stuff. We know that there's some price gouging going on with some of the drug manufacturers. That's problematic. Uh, there's a problem with patents. Uh, you know, they said they were going to deal with that, and they still haven't. So it, it's it's there are some roadblocks here, but they're very, very easily mounted and, and overcome if we just put you know, public health ahead of, of profit in situations like this. 
but you know, I guess we're not going to solve that in the next 10 minutes here, but mm -hmm. I mean, we need to be aware of what's going on. Let me, if I could, I got a few minutes left here, if I could, doctor, and circle back mm -hmm. uh, to what we can do here in our particular area, come uh, vaccination time, uh, the third dose and the booster shot as it is, uh, you mentioned at the beginning of how important that is for us right now to basically, well, the same as we used to, I guess, with so many other things. I mean, I still remember as a kid being immunized for, you know, whooping cough and a number of other things. And you get a booster every couple of years. Mm. Uh, is that the new reality now? Is that what we're going to be looking at when it comes to dealing with COVID? Because I think you, in our last conversation, that you, you made it pretty clear that this isn't going away anytime soon. We're going to mm. we're going to have to learn to live with it and, and, and build defenses against it. But it's, we're not going to eradicate it necessarily. Absolutely. And what you're going to see is a change in how we talk about these. Most of our vaccines come in threes. Three just seems to be the number that the, vac the immune system remembers. It holds on to these things. So if you think about when you took your kids, you were always going usually at you know three months, six months, and 12 months. Your vaccines always came in threes. And for adult vaccines like HPV and hepatitis, they also come in threes. So what we're going to start hearing is people referring to the third dose as completing the course for most of us. So most of us will need at least three doses just to cement that immune response that we already have and keep it in our immune system's memory. And then what we'll probably be looking at are boosters for variant specific things. Right now, we're just focused on, you know, making sure everyone's protected to keep the people out of the hospital. And the vaccines are working super well to do that. But they do still allow some people to get sick, you know, symptoms. So in the future, when we have our new boosters, we'll be able to eliminate that, uh, hopefully as well. So yeah, just look for the change in wording to completing the course um, is what we'll start calling it. And we really do think that we need the three doses to cement that memory. And boosters will be an annual or biannual or whenever a new variant arises, probably event very much like the flu shot, probably. And that's an ongoing process, isn't it? I mean, we do know that, uh, that some of the drug manufacturers have said they're already working on uh, I, I guess it's it's kind of a top up to the to the booster shot right now that would probably deal with Omicron maybe more efficiently. So, but that that happens on a pretty consistent basis, doesn't it? I mean, as as we find out more, the drug companies they can pivot. So the booster shot that somebody got last month may be different from the one somebody's going to get in February or March, simply because they, there there could be some changes there based on what new knowledge they have. Absolutely. So in, you know, when the alpha variant, which is like old, old fashioned now, we don't even worry oh, about that the alpha one. Yeah, variant that one, yeah. yeah, that one. Oh, you know, a lot of the companies started making, uh, trying some vaccines against alpha and beta. And they said, oh, you know, actually, the one we have works just as well. So we might as well stick with what we have. But when we come to Omicron, it does look like a bit of a tweak will be uh, required. And so that process is already starting. And the nice thing about the mRNA technology is it's pretty easy compared to other vaccine technologies to pivot. It's pretty quick to make them and to test them, which is wonderful. Um, and it's also, uh, at least one of the com companies, Moderna, has started experimenting with trying to create a, a flu COVID uh, RSV, which is another uh, airway virus um, shot that could helpfully, hopefully boost people multiple uh, things at the same time. So, you know, it's from a technology point of view, it's a super exciting time because these mRNA vaccines have really done incredibly well in older adults, much, much better than a flu shot ever would have. If this had been a pandemic influenza, you know, we really would have been seeing even more mortality in long-term care and people over 80. So this technology is really promising, but it's just the beginning. And I, I'm excited to see what comes next for keeping, especially our vulnerable uh, older adults and people who are immunocompromised protected. 
What, what about that balance between flu shot and, 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 well, maybe in this case, the booster shot? Can you mix and match here? I mean, you know, we're into flu season Ooh. and, you know, it's, it's. I mean, I'm, I'm not to do apparently according to my schedule, I guess uh, until early in the new year for my booster, uh, based on when I had my second shot of, of the, the, the first round of stuff. But I, I can get a flu shot. Can you do that within a, a relative period of time? We have one on a Thursday and one on a Monday or something? Yeah, I mean, one of the nasty recommendations was originally when we, for the first sort of year and a half, we had these vaccines, they were saying, let's not mix them because we really need to track the side effects. You know, we really yeah. need to know if you do have a side effect, is it because the the COVID one or the influenza one? But now the recommendation is one in each arm. You know, it's, it's uh, we, you know, with 1 billion plus people having got these mRNA vaccines, there's, there's no more surprises to be found. So, um, so you can get them at the same time and your immune system, you know, it's always working on multi, it's a, it's the quintessential multitasker. So there's no concern about, uh, having them both at the same time, totally fine. So far, we're not seeing a lot of influenza in Canada, but there's a real concern that, um, without having had it for two years, that once it gets here, it could be quite bad. So I, I've got my influenza shot already and I'd encourage everyone else to get them. And I guess when I'll give your listeners a top tip. Sure. One of the things that Canada did really, really well that many other countries didn't do is mixing and matching vaccine types. Yeah. From an immunology perspective, it's a great idea. Diversity gives your immune system more to chew on and more different kinds of antibodies to make. It's, it's you know, it really works out well. And we're already seeing um, some data coming from various parts of the world saying that people who do mix and match tended to have fewer breakthrough infections and to hold on to that immunity for longer. So if you got two Pfizer's first and you walk into wherever you're going to get your, your third dose and they say, we have Moderna for you today, don't worry about it. In fact, embrace it. So mixing and matching is a great idea. Um, and it really did seem to pay off. And one of the reasons Canada does not have the same level of breakthrough infections as the U.S. and Israel and other places is thought to be because we delayed the timings. We have longer times between our two doses and because so many of us had mixed and matched vaccines. And, and postscript to that whole thing is if, if you did not mix and match and you got two AstraZeneca's, uh, you qualify for the booster already. Uh, so you should look that up and, uh, and get in touch with your family doctor or your pharmacy to be able to do that. Uh, always insightful, Dr. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And uh, hopefully we've cleared the air on some of these issues for people. Uh, more to come on this, I'm sure. So I'm sure we'll talk again down the road. But thank you for joining us today. My absolute pleasure. Take care. Take care. Dr. Don Bodish, of course, from uh, McMaster University. Uh, to kind of steer us in the right direction here when it comes to booster shots. And uh, don't forget about the flu shot vaccine, too, that we've talked about, too. Because as you say, I know the numbers were ter incredibly low for flu last year. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's it's out there and we uh, we don't want to get caught off guard with that, too. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Fascinating study uh, that has been done at uh, Wilfrid Laurier University that indicates that uh, political partisanship can actually alter memories of identical protest events. And we've seen more than a few of those, of course, in the last number of years. January 6th, of course, in Washington uh, comes to mind. But there have been isolated ones in other parts, uh, anti-vax protests and things of this nature. And you get, especially on social media, different reactions uh, from uh, people that saw the event or have heard of the event. And uh, this study indicates exactly how they actually try to form their opinion. Uh, and it's an uh, interesting, uh, I guess, process of, of human nature. One of the uh, people that worked on the research team is uh, Professor Ann Wilson. Uh, Dr. Ann Wilson is a professor in the Department of Psychology at Wilfrid Laurier University and joins us here on the program to talk about this. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. A fascinating study, isn't it? 
Oh, yeah, it was really interesting. The genesis of this idea, because I think we've all kind of formed our own opinions about this, uh, and, and we see what I think what the study indicates uh, manifested itself, for instance, in media coverage of it or, or recollections of it, uh, you know, by commentators about what they thought they saw or what they actually did see in protests like this. Uh, so this is this is very germane, I think, to what's going on these days, because we're we're seeing more and more of this right now, but uh, social unrest and how we perceive that unrest and what kind of a message we get from it. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the reasons that we were interested in this topic is because protests are becoming so common. And uh, we started off uh, with something called the activist's dilemma, which is the idea that activists, on one hand, are often motivated to extremely, like to be extreme, to engage in extreme tactics because they get attention. But on the other hand, we know that extreme tactics tend to turn off the broader public. So you see this a lot in the kinds of reporting, especially about uh, protests that have happened over the last number of years. And to some extent, uh, this could just be a a function of like, what do you hear in the news and stuff like that? Um, So what we wanted to do is to see how far we could push that by looking at a protest that was actually really peaceful. So we used the Women's March, which was historically large and also peaceful. Um, And we got actual footage um, and made sure that the footage that we had was completely peaceful. Um, And then we showed it to over 300 Americans and asked them what they recalled from that very same footage. And we found that Trump voters were much more likely to actually remember events that hadn't happened. So, for example, um, burning things, breaking windows, fights, so things that we could objectively say did not happen in that footage. Um, and and then they ended up, when they misremembered events in that way, they saw the whole protest as, as more extreme and um, and supported it less. So we see this as kind of, you know, a, a, an experimental encapsulation of what we've been seeing more generally in social discourse um, and that this is more than just what we see in the media it's also that this can even happen when we're faced with exactly the same objective events in front of us is is that, is that something that we're preconditioned to do uh, you know based on for instance you know according to the study maybe our political bent on an issue uh, you know, if if because the event you talked about here that you the study, but that was back in 2017, the the women's uh, protest march, and I, I think the consensus is it was a very peaceful march. Uh, the the I think you know presented a very strong message. But if you if you don't believe in women's rights, if you thought the cause was frivolous, uh, you went with that that preconceived notion. It, it sounds as if you're going to see things that didn't really happen just to validate your your preconceived idea. Yeah, that's right. And I do want to emphasize that. Although um, this particular event that we looked at uh, was one where Trump voters, uh, people who might have been more opposed to the protest, um, were more likely to misremember. I'm not suggesting, we're not suggesting that this is, say, a Trump voter phenomena specifically. This can happen no. really to anyone um, when we are motivated to reach a particular conclusion about some kind of event. So there is a phenomenon called motivated cognition. And this is the idea that often we process information in ways that's different depending on what uh, conclusions we want to draw from it. Um, And because memory is especially malleable, there are lots of ways in which we can end up um, misremembering events even at the best of times. Um, And uh, when we also have a bias in what we want to, to remember, 
this can really end up turbocharging those kinds of memory errors in a way that's really systematic. And uh, so political polarization right now is one factor that can really cause that to happen, although it can happen for other things too, right? So you can think about people's uh, favorite sports teams and disputing ref calls. This is kind of an example of that, but just in a political domain. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because, like I say, you see it manifest itself so readily now because people that may have those preconceived ideas are, are actually, I suppose, even in hindsight, have developed uh, their ideas about what they thought they saw in a situation like that. Uh, now have a platform uh, to, to spread that 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 feeling. You know, you get on a Twitter account and all of a sudden you say, I saw that. You know, no, they, they were burning things and they were smashing windows. Well, no, they weren't. But if that's what you thought you saw, uh, you, you, you tend to make that message known to to Twitter followers and things of this nature too. So it's uh, it, it's problematic simply because it's one of these things that, you know, can all of a sudden, I guess, manifest itself in so many different ways where you're actually spreading misinformation right now. And even people that maybe didn't even see the event are going to form an opinion on that and, and simply concur because they have the same political bent as that individual. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Our social media environment right now can just amplify this so much because every single error can end up getting retweeted or shared, you know, in some cases, millions of times. So a single error then turns into something that's a much wider mass phenomenon. So were you surprised by the results? I would say we were not that surprised that we found bias, but we were somewhat surprised that we found as many people reporting things that were so clearly not there in the video, right? So, um, so, so we, were, we were somewhat struck by that. Um, but in retrospect, uh, I think that it's consistent with some, some other evidence that's out there. Um, and, uh, and I think it just pushes it a little bit further in the context of protest. And, and of course, well, I, I, you use the example of the Women's March. I mean, the one that comes to mind, I guess, for an awful lot of us was January 6th in Washington last year. Uh, and we saw that. Many of us saw that in real time as it was happening with our own eyes. And uh, and to hear the explanations of some people afterwards that said it was a peaceful protest, it, it's mind-boggling. But the study here it seems to indicate that they really did think it was a peaceful protest. They, they weren't just trying to, you know, massage the message here. That's That's what they saw in their own mind. Uh, I guess maybe because of their their political bent about what was going on and what they thought was was justified because of that. Yeah, that's right. I think that this is this is true for that event, uh, for the January sixth uh, event, um, and for a number of other things that have happened over the last few years. One recent example that's not a protest but is actually quite similar um, is the the video footage that was shown during the the Rittenhouse trial um, mm -hmm. was also something that people were concluding very different things about the exact same footage, depending on what conclusion they had already come to. Um, so that's probably another case where uh, pre-existing biases really shape what people perceive. Double, double back for a could, could you talk about something just off the top here that I, was, I found fascinating about this activist's dilemma? Uh, and as you described it, compelling protesters, you got to make a choice here. Do I want to capture attention or get my message across or how do I do that? You know, if I stand outside the government building with a placard for five hours, is that going to do anything? Uh, but if I jump up and down and start a fire in a garbage can, that's going to draw attention. Uh, but am I going to get arrested for that? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting concept and an interesting, I guess, uh, development here in, in you know but how they're actually going to do this and how far you want to go i guess one of the phrases you might want to use is what line do you want to cross to make your point 
Yeah, that's right. And it's something that, um, you know, there, there are ethical and philosophical and all kinds of different perspectives that you can have on that. But it's something that I think um, is there's a real complexity to that in any kind of protest movement. And you often will have people who are more passionate and more extreme and other people who are more moderate. Um, and it's often the mix that really ends up, uh, you know, defining how the, the, the movement moves forward. But if you're part of that, if you're one of the group of, of whatever protest it might be, whether it's the Women's March or, or something else, it could be, do you get caught up in this? I mean, they talk about the fact that, you know, some people are just followers and they may have gone to, a, a, for instance, something like this with the best intentions of just holding up that placard and walking up and forth in, in front of a, well, the White House or the Capitol Building or City Hall in whatever community they're in. But if somebody else decides, oh, I want to take it to the next level, uh, what motivates people to say, yeah, I guess I'm in on that now, too? that's probably a little beyond my expertise, but um, in, in a general sense, social psychology demonstrates that, uh, you know, people can really be influenced by collective behavior. So if something starts to seem normative, especially if you're in a crowd or a mob, so you feel more anonymous, less like an individual, uh, then sometimes the, the collective behavior will take over. Um, however, I think it's also important to emphasize that even in cases like uh, where there has been violence or, um, uh, you know, more extreme behaviors at some of these protests, uh, lots of people, the majority of people at the protest don't end up engaging in that. Um, but yeah, there will be, in some cases, people who didn't intend to, who still get swept up in that. When we see this behavior and we form our opinions based on, you know, something you saw, something I saw, and, and our recollection of that could be very, very different. Does when when we hear those contrary opinions, does it in any way try to force us to change our perspective, or are, do, do we dig our heels in and say, "No, you're wrong. I'm right. I, I know what I saw." Yeah, I think that we we tend to do that, especially if we see that the other side is demonstrably biased, right? Um, one of the takeaways for me, though, is that although most of us do intuitively understand that other people are biased and, and you know, it's a, it bugs us, right? And it, it makes us dig in our heels to a greater extent. We're often less intuitively aware of the ways that we are also biased, right? So it's worth reminding ourselves that this <laughs> bias and the ways in which our pre-existing beliefs might actually sometimes make us move further away from objective reality, that that applies to us as well as to other people. Um, so it's worth checking ourselves in cases uh, like that rather than getting entrenched when we see bias in other people. Well, exactly, because that's the reaction I find with most people. You know, I'm not, I'm objective about this. You're the one that's got the bias. You know, I, I know what I saw and I'm trying to look at both sides. And I, but you, you, you came in with a preconceived idea. We, we want to, I, I guess, you know, transpose our own feelings onto somebody else and simply say, you're the one with the problem here, not me. Yeah, that's right. And it's the, the, there's a term called the bias blind spot that, that shows that that happens pretty regularly. Um, and I think it's something that we can all fall into. It certainly makes me more humble about the things that I, I think I know to be completely true. Um, I know might still be at least partly incorrect in some cases. Uh, you mentioned that you think that uh, people now have become more accepting of caricatures that demonize people on the other side of political spectrum. Is that is that one of the byproducts of of, of what we're doing here and what you've talked about in the study here, that it, it's helping us to form opinions about other individuals and other movements and, and you know, and, and maybe, you know, enshrining them or maybe validating what we've already thought? Yeah, I think that the, the caricatured uh, views that we have of our opponents is something that's becoming especially prevalent because of the current era of political polarization. 
Um, you know, and it's important to, to recognize that political disagreement is important and, and it's necessary. So I'm not suggesting that everybody should meet in the middle in these kinds of situations. Mm-hmm. And it's even really, you know, important in some cases to push passionately for what you believe and value and disagree with people who, who don't. Um, but if what we're fighting is a caricature or an illusion of our opponents, if we're demonizing our opponents to such a, a degree that we don't even really know what they stand for or what they have done, um, then we're not actually moving our own our own position forward, right? Because we're ending up um, kind of you know fighting at at something that's not quite there. Um, so, you know, I think that this is something that can happen in a lot of situations, but is especially prevalent right now because of the, the degree of political polarization we're facing. And social media, of course, just amplifies that even further. How did we get to the point where we are so polarized in situations like this? I mean, I, I'm not suggesting there was ever this utopian world where, hey, we're just going to agree to disagree. And that, that's a great phrase you love to hear oftentimes. But we don't agree to disagree anymore. You know, we say, I'm right, you're wrong. And, 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 you know, and then, as you say, you demonize the person that's got a contrary opinion. Uh, it didn't always have to be that way, but it's almost getting to be, at least on social media anyway, the norm. Yeah, there are probably multiple reasons, but a couple that I point to uh, over the last couple of decades, at least, um, have to do with political elites becoming less civil and uh, more extreme in their tactics. So to some to some extent, it's actually what politicians are doing. Um, the media more generally, so we have partisan media, things like Fox News and uh, MSNBC and other, uh, other kinds of media organizations that have to a greater extent used some political partisanship as part of their business model. And then that, of course, gets even more amplified on social media because now every person can participate in that and can, uh, you know, pick their team and share the, the views that um, come across uh, their screen in uh, in a way that is just, you know, much more easy, quick, and, uh, and right there in front of us um, than ever before. And uh, so part of this is the way that social media is set up. And, um, you know, that includes the stuff that people choose to do, and even the stuff that people aren't aware of. So for example, social media algorithms uh, tend to put in front of our faces stuff that's more likely to make us angry and upset. Um, And so if we're more likely to be exposed to these things that are going to make us mad, we're more likely to share them and we're more likely to end up with these misrepresentations of what the reality is uh, in the world out there more generally. And and I guess gravitate towards those media sources or information sources, I guess, that that validate our, our, our ideas. Um, yeah, that's, you know, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. You don't want to hear the other side uh, because they're wrong. You know, so why would you do that? And and I know we're just about out of time, but I guess to a certain extent, I mean, you know, the, those outlets you just talked about are actually perpetuating that because they that's their brand now and they want to validate that brand. You know, I can remember a time when there were, you know, hardcore Republicans on MSNBC, Pat Buchanan and others. They don't do that anymore. Uh, you know, because they want to perpetuate that brand. And Fox News does the same thing on the other end of the political spectrum. And and depending on your views, of course, you'll gravitate to either one or the other, I guess, from that standpoint. It's a fascinating study. I'm so glad you had some time to talk to us about this today, Professor. Thank you for this. Thanks you. Thank you. Dr. Ann Wilson, Professor of the Department of Psychology at Wilfrid Laurier University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.